Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Father in heaven, it is a glorious thing to be part of your church, and we praise you for it. You saved us in your love. You saved us by sending your Son to give himself in our place for our sin and take our punishment so that we might be credited with his righteousness. Jesus, your righteousness. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. Thank you, God, for saving us and making us part of your people. We want to give ourselves to share you, Jesus, with this world, to proclaim you in this dark place, to shine the light of your love and grace, to extend the gift of forgiveness and mercy in this world, wherever we can, however we can. Please, strengthen us for that. We thank you for the opportunities we've had to be a part of it. And please, build us up in your word Make us more like you, Jesus, and better disciples with greater conviction in this time that you've given to us for your glory. Please bless our time in your word. Bless it, God. Send your spirit to help us, we ask, in the name of Jesus, amen. There is something iconic about the picture of a person standing alone against the strength of an erring crowd. Imagine one person standing up against a crowd like this one. There's something just iconic about that. We respect the courage, the determination, the conviction of that person. I remember a scene like that that I experienced in 1999. still can't believe it. I was alive in the 1900s. In 1999, I was 28 years old, had recently been ordained within the denomination that I grew up within. I was excited to go to their general council. I had been a licensed minister during, doing pastoral work for about six years by that time, but I had not yet been to the biannual general council. And it was at the Orlando Convention Center, and there were thousands of people there. If I remember correctly, it was about 4,000 people there. During the business sessions, Robert's rules of order was rigorously followed, and each agenda item was handled with complete decorum. Then a lone man, a pastor, came to one of the microphones stationed in the aisles. He had prepared a thorough and biblically informed argument as to why the office of pastor should be held by men. He went through his points, basing his logic on Scripture. I remember it well because I had, around that time, had my eyes open to the fact that God has a lot to say about male and female in the Bible, including in regard to the office of elder or pastor. I admired how his argument was entirely biblical, and he walked through in a concise manner the scriptures that spoke to the biblical office of pastor being held by men. When the pastor finished his proposal that the office of pastor should be restricted to men, you could hear the crickets 
It was near to silent in that enormous room, but not for long. A woman was acknowledged to speak at another microphone on the floor. And in contrast to the calm manner of the man she was responding to, she was inflamed, passionate. She began to say in the most intense tones that God had called her to ministry and that no one could take that away from her. And how dare someone challenge that? I'm not exaggerating. I remember it well. It was, in fact, an emotional plea. She did not appeal to the Scripture, and the entire logic of her argument was, God told me that I'm doing the right thing, and you can't tell me otherwise. The tone and the approach of the two speakers could not have been more different, and nor could have been the response in the room When she was done, the crowd of thousands roared their approval for her speech. Many responded with shouts of amen as if she had just preached a a sermon from the Scriptures. In their applause for her, they also condemned him, the man and his message. The first man spoke again, but this time the crowd was clearly hostile. The prior decorum of the room had somewhat lessened. The thought seized me to go to the mic for two reasons. First, to support the courageous brother who was speaking the truth against the crowd. And second, because the crowd, filled with ministers, should have been rebuked although gently, but they should have been rebuked because they were silent at the presentation of Scripture. But cheered the expression of one person's idea of self-fulfillment. And you would think a room full of ministers would catch that. I only had moments to decide. My heart was pounding. I was sweating. I tried to reason it out. I'm only 28. This is my first general council. I've just been ordained. Surely, surely someone else will put forward the observation about the difference in argumentation that we just experienced and the reaction of the crowd to those different approaches. The one from Scripture, the other from emotion or personal experience, personal desire, really. And then the moment passed. No one else rose to speak. The chairman took a quick vote And the matter was over, and you know how that vote turned out. The modern self and self-actualization defeated Scripture in the room on that day. But for me, it was a lesson in standing for conviction. I had missed the chance to stand with the brother and support him and strengthen him because I was afraid. I wasn't prepared to act quickly with strength for truth and to stand on God's Word and for the good of the church. I could have been a means to strengthen him that day, but I left him with the impression that he was alone. 
In the scheme of things, that was just one moment in a much larger story, the history of that denomination. That denomination has embraced feminism a long time ago, and that faithful pastor's appeal had no shot of making any dent in that room. But more importantly, I suspect that pastor had already learned something before that gave him the courage to speak the truth before thousands of hostels. I'll put it like this. Stand for the Lord, and you will find that you never stand alone. Stand for the Lord, and you will find that you never stand alone. Our text is going to teach us this truth, but of course, there is much more at stake for Paul than for the man in my story or for me. For Paul, it's life and death. But Paul knows it may look like he's alone. It may feel like he's alone. But he is not alone. Let me read the text in full to you, and then we're going to break it up into two parts, two points. This text is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, our la- the last portion in our sermon series we've entitled Guard the Gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments." Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's consider our first point. Paul stands to the end. He stands to the end. As we said a few times now, 2 Timothy is the last writing we have from the Apostle Paul. And this here is the last section of his writing. These are, therefore, his last recorded inspired words because the Scriptures are inspired by God, breathed out by God. And they are probably written, these words are probably written months or maybe even just weeks before his death. The setting is that of a prison in Rome. This is not the house arrest that we find Paul in at the end of the story in Acts. This is after that house arrest. House arrest isn't great by any means, but it's far better than the situation, far more comfortable than the situation that Paul finds himself in right now. This prison is known in history. It was a cistern converted into a holding cell. 
uh, is probably not an uncommon thing to do, to take a cistern and turn it into a prison. A building was erected on top of the cistern, and the prisoners would have been lowered down into it and brought back up by a ladder. Prisoners were sometimes, or maybe oftentimes, actually executed in that building just above or on the grounds, just outside of the prison itself. And that could have been the case with Paul, that he was beheaded in that building or just outside of that building. He may not have gone far outside of that cistern. A cistern, even a large one, would make for a dark, damp, cold, foul, crowded prison. The torchlight would have created smoke that they were breathing constantly. The the odors would have been putrid, the lack of washing and just constant uh, uh, stifling, uh, lack of movement of air. This is where Paul spends his last days. Paul knows his end is near. That's why he wrote just, just in the last portion, before the portion we're in today, he wrote this up on the screen, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knows he's near the end, but not only do we see it in the passage before, we see it in our passage. We get some clues here as well. So for instance, in, in verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. So think of that. He's saying, he's saying come to me. He's, he's saying, would you come and visit? He's not just saying, would you come and visit? He's saying, do your best to come. And he emphasized, do your best to come soon. Please Come. And then he writes again in verse 21 at the end. So he writes at the beginning of this portion, at the end of the portion, he writes, do your best to come. And this time, more specifically, before winter. Why does Paul want Timothy to come to him soon? Well, he's going to give us another reason that we're going to look at in a few moments. But part of the urgency is because winter is coming. And that matters because Timothy is traveling from Ephesus or its vicinity, and that's known as Asia at the time where Ephesus is at. That's Asia, but today it's, we call it Turkey. We don't call that area Asia as much. We, we think of the further east as Asia, but at that time they called that area of Turkey Asia, and it was broken up into different regions. Timothy will take the land route north through Asia, then across, he'll take the land across through Greece, going westward, and then he'll come to the sea that we know as the Adriatic Sea. I think they called it that at the time, too. And he has to sail over the Adriatic Sea. If he doesn't sail over the Adriatic Sea, the the land route is just too far to even contemplate, to go all the way up north and into Italy from the north and then back down to Rome. It just takes way too long. And Paul knows that if Timothy doesn't get there before the winter, that in the winter, the shipping lanes will close and he won't be able to sail. And if Timothy doesn't get there in time to sail, which, which they believe was November 10 was the hard cutoff, and then even the month before or so, even from September sometime, it was hard to sail 
it could be very risky. But definitely from about November 10 to about March 10, those shipping lanes were closed. No one, no one sailed during those times. It was too risky. And so if Timothy doesn't make it there in time, he's not going to get to sail. And that means he may not see Paul before Paul dies. And Paul knows that. Speaking of the winter, Paul also wants Timothy to swing by a, a city on the way, Troas, to pick up a cloak for him. A cloak was basically a heavy blanket, probably wool, with a hole cut in it for your head, like a, like a poncho. But it would, so it would go over you and it would keep you warm. It was probably summer when Paul left Troas, so it was too hot to wear, and he didn't want to carry it for such a distance. But now he's constantly cold and damp. That combination of nonstop cold, damp, and dirty has to suck the life out of any soul. Can you imagine never getting warm under blankets, never taking a hot shower, never feeling the warm sun for weeks or months? Paul knows this is the end of the road for him. He knows he will probably be executed, but he stands. And I think you know what I mean when I say he stands. Not that he never sits down or never lays down, but rather he remains faithful to the Lord. He's unwavering as the Lord's apostle, as the Lord's envoy, as the Lord's messenger. He will testify to Jesus as Savior and argue for the Lord's rightful place as Lord and Savior so that everyone can be saved, that hears his breath and trusts the Lord to know that their sins are taken away. Paul will do this until his breath is taken away. Not even Caesar himself, not even Nero, not even the threat of Nero wielding all his power, his demonic, satanic power. We talked about the deep, the, 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 the dragon a week ago. This is the dragon. This is Satan using the government to oppress and destroy God's people. And Paul will fall into that category, but not even the dragon himself wielding all that power can cause Paul to take a metaphorical seat. He's not going to do it. Paul stands for Christ Jesus, and he will not stop. Look at how deep Paul's conviction is. We should let that sink in on us. So we can see that Paul's in prison. He's in terrible and constant discomfort. He's facing almost certain execution at the hands of the infamous Nero. But we can also see as we look at this picture from his words that these are not his only sorrows. He has those sorrows, he's still standing, but he has more sorrows. So listen to this. Right after Paul tells Timothy to do your best to come to me soon, he tells Timothy why he wants him to come to him soon. He says, Demas has deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus went to Dalmatia. Tychicus went to Ephesus. Erastus remained at Corinth and never came with me here. And I left Trophimus at Miletus because he was sick. He says, Luke alone is with me here. He's saying, Timothy, please get here as quickly as you can because I'm basically alone in the worst suffering of my life. 
It was also very customary and, and not that different today, but especially at that time for a son when his father was on his deathbed to go quickly to his father's side and spend time with him. Paul is Timothy's father in the faith. And so Paul is calling his son. He's saying, come, I'm near the end. I'm alone. Please come. Remember when Paul says that Luke alone is with me, he's not saying that Luke is in prison with him. He's, he's saying that Luke is nearby and he's visiting Paul as much as he can. He's forwarding Paul's work as much as possible. But how much can one person do? And that is why Paul feels alone and in need of Timothy's company. We should probably note that most of these names that left him, the other names that I listed, most of them did so for ministry reasons. It wasn't all for bad reasons, right? Some were even sent out by Paul himself. For instance, Tychicus may have been the one who bore the letter to Ephesus. I won't go into it, but there's some evidence that he took that letter to Timothy and then was to remain at Ephesus. But there are also a couple of names that add even more to Paul's loneliness and his sorrows. First, there's Demas. Demas deserted Paul. Demas, it seems, had been with Paul for several years But now things have gotten too hot to handle. And Demas goes AWOL, absent, without leave. He disappears. Paul's in prison. He disappears. When verse 9 says that Demas is in love with this present world, there's a nuance we should note. The word translated world here doesn't mean the earth, and doesn't mean mankind, and it doesn't mean the cosmos, cosmos. Per se. It's not, that, it's not that the world as it's created is not good, but that's not what's being addressed here. Rather, when it says though that he's in love with the world, it means something like he's in love with this age. He's in love with the thinking of this age. He's too aligned with the way the world thinks. It's the idea that Demas is valuing the security and the provisions and the convenience of this age, fallen as it is, as opposed to the next one that our Lord will usher in. And I think we should give Demas a little slack here because we don't know exactly. It doesn't necessarily mean that Demas has denounced Christ, but it does raise that specter, doesn't it? Maybe he did denounce Christ. It certainly does mean that Demas has not stood firm. He's not standing up for Christ. He's not standing strong for Jesus in this age. At one point he did. He stood shoulder to shoulder with Paul for our Lord. You know you're old when you're not eating anything and your voice just stops working. At one point, he stood shoulder to shoulder with Paul for our Lord. He stood with him. But now he left Paul's side. He's taken a seat. He's retired from the fight. I think if we're honest, we all know the temptation of Demas inside of us, don't we? And this is instructive for us. Demas served in apostolic fashion alongside the most 
prolific apostle. For years, he saw great things. He saw many come to trust the Lord. He saw miracles. And yet, when the danger came too near, he said something like, I'm too old for this stuff. I've done enough. I've served my time. It's okay for me to let go now. Or it's time I attend to my own desires or something like that. But whatever it was, he let himself off the hook. He took himself away from the calling that God had given him to stand shoulder to shoulder with Paul. The point here is not for us to condemn Demas and thank God for his grace to us, right? The point for us is to test ourselves to see if we would stand or would we retire. To check our convictions to gauge the worth of what we truly believe. When it, com- when it comes time to stand, to really stand, do our convictions to follow Jesus mean anything? This is why, in part, it's so good to be baptized. Because when you're baptized, you, Part of it is you you stand up and you you go through this. It's a simple ritual. It points directly to what Jesus has done. But it's a public declaration to anyone who would come and witness it. You're saying, I belong to Jesus. I unashamedly belong to Jesus. I mean, we need to have at least that much conviction, right? To stand up and be baptized. If someone doesn't have enough conviction to put aside any fears they have and stand up and be baptized, I think you have to question, will you stand for the Lord? It's one of the reasons that baptism is what it is. Do our convictions to follow Jesus mean anything? Think for a moment about the effect of Demas' desertion. If Demas had stuck around like Luke had, Paul would have received more comfort and had less loneliness in his last days. He would have known more of the kindness of God through the man Demas. But because Demas did abandon Paul to that prison at that time, Paul felt more alone. He was tempted at a deeper level. Isn't it interesting that for Demas... And the call God had upon him at a given time. Faithfulness to Christ looked like what Luke did. Faithfulness to Christ, think about this, faithfulness to Christ looked like standing by Paul when he's being persecuted for Christ. That's what it looked like for him to be faithful. That's what God had called him to. For, For us, Faithfulness certainly looks like opening the Scriptures and obeying the Lord and coming to be part of the church. It also can look like what has God given us? Being a faithful husband, being a faithful wife, being a faithful father, faithful mother, faithful child, faithful single, faithful friend, faithful sibling. These are gospel matters. And God has called us to them. When it comes to time to stand, to really stand. Do our convictions to follow Jesus mean anything? 
In spite of the blow of Demas' departure, Paul continues to stand unwavering, unshaken, unmoved. He testifies to Jesus, the Christ, and remains undaunted. You see, in the end, the one who stands for Christ does so without regret, with a clean conscience. He stands before the Lord, commended by God. He can be confident in the Lord's commendation, but the one who was shaken, the one who deserts, that's a tenuous affair. That's the stuff that creates torment in the heart and mind. In truth, Paul was the one who was free, and Demas the one who was enslaved and in prison. Can we see that, that truth? You see, when we're called to stand for Jesus in this world, in the various ways that we're called to stand for Jesus in this world, and we don't. We haven't freed ourselves. We may have temporarily made it easier for ourselves. Paul could have done that by denying Christ, but we haven't freed ourselves. We've enslaved ourselves. The only way to be free is to stand for Christ in this world. Praise the Lord for the grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen? We need that grace. Oh, how we need it. Stand for the Lord, and you will find that you never stand alone. We see Paul standing to the end. Now, let's be clear that he does not stand alone. He stands to the end, and by standing to the end, he gets to find out he's not standing alone. I had mentioned that there were a couple of people that made Paul's aloneness especially difficult, and we talked about Demas, but there's another mention here too. Paul says in verse 14 that Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. And I get the sense that Alexander in that time and place was, was kind of like, that. the name Alexander in that time and place was kind of like the name Josh here. If you turn to any gathering of Crossway folks and you call out, hey Josh, you'll see about six heads turn at once. There's Josh Branham and Josh Moser and Josh Groff and Josh Donaldson and Josh Landis, and I'm sure I'm offending at least three or four other Joshes by not mentioning them this morning. To all the Joshes out there, please forgive me for not mentioning your name. Lancaster County is a Josh County, but Josh is popular everywhere. Alexander was a common name. Nevertheless, it's almost certain that this Alexander is the one referenced in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's referenced there as a false teacher. And Paul says about this false teacher, along with another man, he turned Alexander over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. In other words, okay, you want to rebel against God? Go ahead, have your way. Have the full effect of it. Let's see what happens. And by the time Satan's done with you, you will finally learn not to rebel. At least that's Paul's hope. That's Paul's hope, that he would repent. And here in 2 Timothy, Paul expands that that Alexander strongly opposed the gospel message. And by strongly, strongly opposing Paul's preaching of the gospel, that adds to his sorrow. And he's warning Timothy, be on guard against him. Alexander was probably in the, the area of Ephesus. He's warning Timothy, be on guard. But there's also something else going on here too. Because here, in this bit about Alexander, 
we start to see that Paul knows he's not alone. He's not alone. He may feel alone. It may seem like he's alone. Everybody else may think he's alone and weak. But Paul knows as I stand for Christ, I am not alone. Paul's in prison. He's powerless. He's close to dead. He has powerful enemies out there like Alexander. But Paul's hope was never in his own ability to conquer God's enemies. His hope is in the Lord. And do you see what he says in the middle of verse 14? Do you see what it says there? He says about Alexander and his evil ways. He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You see, Paul knows. Paul knows that God is watching. He knows that Jesus is with him. He knows that God is the judge and keeping accounts. He knows that he feels alone, but he knows that he's not alone. You see, that's what our cries in prayer to the Lord accomplish and are all about. They are faith. When we cry out to the Lord, it is faith. When we complain to the Lord, it's faith. When we uh, cry in pain, it's faith. When we cry to the Lord because we've been wronged, we cry in part because we feel alone. But our cries are evidence that we know we are not alone, but that God sees and He knows and He hears and He's for us. And he will answer. Paul's faith is strong. His conviction in the Lord is sure. He does not say, maybe the Lord will vindicate me. No, he says with certainty, the Lord will repay the evildoer, the one who opposes Christ, the one who becomes an enemy of God, an enemy of the Lord. The Lord will repay him for his deeds. Sometimes that's all we can say when we're being opposed, when the gospel message is is being opposed, all we can say is the Lord will judge between you and me. We'll see in the end. And we can stand in that confidence and in that faith against the enemies of God's people. When we know the Lord is with us, no matter what befalls us, we know he will make it right. And now we get to the most lonely moment for Paul the moment when he is most alone in his account. It's when he goes to his hearing. There are other people there, to be sure. But those other people in that room, in the hearing, his first defense, those, all those people are against him. And some are absolutely antagonistic to the gospel. That is, after all, the reason he's there. If he would stop standing firm in Christ, if he would let go of faith in the Lord Jesus, If he would affirm that Caesar alone is God or that all these other pagan gods were gods and Jesus was just one God among many gods, if he would stop insisting that God will judge them for their sin, if he would stop calling them to repent, if he would stop saying Jesus alone is Lord and you must trust him, if he would stop all that, he could go free just like that. He could receive Comfort and peace and maybe even pleasure in this age. 
But he will not. He cannot. He must stand. He will stand. And stand he does. And he's standing against the wind, against the tide, against the waves. He's fighting the current. Use any metaphor you like. He will not deny Jesus, the Son of God. And do you know what he finds when he refuses to deny Jesus, the Son of God? When he stands for him, he finds out that he is not alone, not alone at all. Look again at these verses. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Is not that the greatest thing? Is that not the greatest thing that a Christian could hope for in this world? Is that not the greatest moment a Christian can experience while standing for Jesus to to bump and find, oh, Lord, you're here with me. And you're strengthening me. Is there anything greater than that? The knowledge that Jesus the Son stands next to us is priceless. And doesn't that remind us a bit of verses like this? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they they comfort me. And this, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And here's what we know. We know that this isn't just about Paul. This is about our Lord. It's who he is. It's his nature, his character. It's what he's called us to. And this is what he's like with everyone that calls on his name and stands for him and with him. He is with us. Can you see why it's so important to be convictionally unwavering for Jesus the Christ? No matter what comes because it's under the duress of feeling like you're alone to realize that in that reality, in that moment, you're not. You're not. Do you know what that causes us to reason out in our logic? It causes us to recognize that sometimes when we feel alone, it's because we're not standing for Jesus. Sometimes when we've, um, when we've compromised and retired from standing for the gospel, it's after that that we, we feel the condemnation. But in standing for him, we're going to know his presence, his nearness, his faithfulness. Can you see why it's so important to stand for Jesus the Christ, no matter what comes. The Lord stands next to everyone who stands for him. Let's stand, brothers and sisters. Let's stand. Let's stand in this world. The Lord will be right there as we do. We don't want to miss this. Paul says that the Lord did not simply stand next to him, but he empowered him. 
The Lord empowered Paul. What did he empower him to do? He empowered him to testify fully at his hearing to all the Gentiles there. But Paul actually uses the term so that all the Gentiles, almost like all the Gentiles everywhere, will hear the testimony about Jesus. Think about this. Paul's not in an outlying place. He's not in a, 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 a smaller sister city to Rome. He's not even in a prominent place somewhere else. He's in the place. He's in the place of places in that empire. He's in Rome. He's in the judicial system at Rome. He's in the emperor's court. His case will come before the emperor. His story will get out. His story will go far in the empire. His very life will force people to make a decision about Jesus Christ. That's why he can say, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. This apostle to the Gentiles fulfilled his calling. How many came to Christ later because they first heard the gospel when they heard about this man Paul refusing to deny his Lord and standing firm to the end, strengthened by his God. You see, even in his aloneness, his aloneness was extremely purposeful. God had ordained it. It was very purposeful so that the gospel would get out even more powerfully. And Paul was not alone, not truly. He wasn't really alone. One more note on being alone, but it reminds me of another story. Do you remember that story about Elijah? He confronted the priests of Baal on the mountain. Elijah, the prophet, hundreds of years before Paul, had confronted the prophets of Baal, at those pagan prophets, and had so thoroughly humiliated them and had those rebels against Yahweh, he had them executed at the end of it. It was this incredible victory for God among his people. And he was, Elijah was so exultant that he ran ahead of the king's chariot for what appears to be miles. And the next day, however, the wicked queen Jezebel is so angry that she swears to have all the prophets killed, and especially Elijah. And so she wants to have him killed. And do you remember what Elijah did? Very differently from the day before in his boldness and strength, Elijah ran away out into the wilderness where no one knew where he was. He exhausted himself to the point of despair. He despaired of life and told God to take him. He essentially said something like, I'm the only one, Yahweh, who's still serving you. You may as well take my life. It's over. We can relate to that sometimes, right? And we, can, we can excuse Elijah's sense of self-pity because we would certainly have experienced that as well. But that is what it is. It's self-pity. It's not accurate. It's not true. It's not objective. It's not who God is. But we can relate to it, right? There's times, oh, God, what's the point? The world is so bad. It's, the evil is so strong. It reminds me of that line from This Is My Father's World where it says the wrong seems oft so strong as if the wrong is so powerful. The wrong is so powerful. It cannot be overcome in this world. It's not true. 
It's not true, but the enemy loves for you to believe it and to forsake the one you're standing for. We should not be so pessimistic. One of the beautiful things here in Paul's last words is the tone of them. They're not gleefully triumphant. There's sorrow in them. There's there's mourning. No, he's facing real suffering, real sorrow. But nor are his words abysmally despairing. There is joy, there is hope, there is love, and there is life. And Paul is utterly convinced that God is at work in this world and has his people everywhere. And he's saving and will not stop. So he doesn't take the tact of Elijah's despair. Instead, he writes as his final words. This is what he writes. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Do you see all these brothers and sisters? Brothers, by the way, would include the larger group, the brothers being representative uh, as the male is representative of the larger group. Do you see all these brothers and sisters sending their greetings to the other brothers and sisters, to Timothy and to the Christians there? You see that? Isn't this fascinating? Here's Paul writing his last inspired words on earth, having, suspecting that he was just about done. It may be convention to write greetings at the end of a letter, but what if your life was on the line and you were miserable in a dungeon and and feeling very alone? You might be inclined to skip that and say, you know, for once in my life, I could just make this be about me. But he's greeting. He's sending greetings. He's connecting dots. You see how Paul prioritizes that at the end of this letter? It's quite a statement. He's not alone, and he knows it. He has the Lord by his side, and not only the Lord by his side, he has those that God is saving nearby, his brothers and sisters, and he's concerned that their love and their fellowship between them all continues. He wants to make sure that the Christians in Ephesus and Timothy, Ephesus and, and Timothy, Timothy, that they know that there are believers in Rome and people coming to Christ in Rome and that they love the believers there and should be loved by the believers in Ephesus. You see how critical fellowship is? You see, fellowship is a demonstration that we know we're not alone. And when we stand together in this world, we strengthen each other for glorious gospel testimony glorious gospel testimony. Stand for the Lord and you will find that you never stand alone. I'd like to ask Doug to come. We're going to sing in closing in just a moment. We should ask ourselves why. Why does Paul stand so firmly? Or maybe I should say it this way, how? How does he stand so firmly? How does Paul have such Deep conviction. Well, consider the vision that captured Paul to begin with. 
He was named Saul. Remember, he was named Saul. He was persecuting Christians, convinced that they were perverting the truth of God, that they were misapplying the Scriptures, that they were uh, agents of misinformation and false religion, that they were the blasphemers. And so he's on his way to do his worst against the Christians feeling rightly, he, feeling like he was the righteous one. And a light surrounds him, so dazzling, so bright, blinding him, knocking him to the ground. In a moment, throwing him into a confusion that upends his entire worldview a man so confident now had no purpose, no goals, realizing in a flash he knew nothing and didn't understand God at all. The voice says to him, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? He has no knowledge of who God really is. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul's taken up blind and you know the rest of the story. He's healed some days later and he becomes, obviously at that point he's convinced and embraces Jesus Christ and begins to testify to Jesus It's amazing that God had to make Paul blind in order for him to truly see. That's why Paul was so convinced. He could never forget how his whole world had been upended and the grace of God to him, a killer of his, the servants of Christ, had been forgiven and given a job in the kingdom of God, he will stand firm to the end. You see? No matter what he's going to face, he's going to stand firm right to the end. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, if I had that same vision, then I also would have that same conviction. I mean, if I had seen Jesus and been blinded for three days and then healed of that, I also would die for Jesus. But I haven't had that. So really, how much can you ask of me? But to say that is to miss the point and to, to miss our situation, how we have it. And frankly, it's to be ungrateful. Because what we have is something that Paul never did have. See, we have the Scriptures, and in the Scriptures, not only do we have the story of Paul's conversion, but we have the proof that Paul believed, that Paul was truthful, that he was sincere, because if he was just telling a story, he would have never gone to prison and died for it. He would have never been so alone. He would have never suffered like that, but he did. He was more than willing right up to the end. Remember when he says, the Lord will rescue me. He's, the Lord's rescue me from the mouth of the lions. He will rescue me from all evil until he brings me safely into his kingdom. Do you know what he's saying there? 
He's saying, I know I'm going to die. I'm going to be separated from my body, and I'll, I'll be, but I'll be brought into the kingdom of heaven. I'll be brought into heaven with, with my Lord. That's the conviction that he had. And what he's given to us, really what God's given to us, what the Holy Spirit of God has given to us through the Holy Scriptures and the work that he's doing in us, is that we too can stand just as firm. Would you stand with us, please? For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.